here in just a moment. We're going to have a very special guest on the podcast. Y'all might know his name. Starts with a D and sounds like Doug Wilson. Yes, Pastor Doug Wilson from Moscow, Idaho. We are going to be talking about his book, Rules for Reformers. So hang tight for just a moment. We'll be right back. Here I stand. I can do no other. God help me. Will you recant or will you not? Since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply. Welcome to the Here I Stand Theology Podcast, where we are a podcast devoted to a pointed and spirited debate of biblical doctrine. As we mentioned in the teaser there, we've got a very special guest in the studio, well, in the studio live via the interwebs. In any case, he is here with us. Let's not delay any longer. Let's just go ahead and bring him in, Mr. Doug Wilson. That was very. That was very nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, we aim to please. We aim to please. <laughs> so glad that you are with us, Doug, uh, today. Uh, thankful. This is your second time being on the Here I Stand Theology Podcast. We appreciate your time and your effort and your energy. I do want to say this personally. I appreciate the work you do as a minister, as a man of God. Appreciate your stance, uh, and I just want you to know we love you in the Lord. So, that Thank being you. said. We've got a uh, a couple of things we'll jump right into here. I know you've got a lot, as we mentioned pre-show. I know you've got a lot on your plate, so we'll just we'll get right into some of the the heavy stuff right here at the beginning. I don't know if you remember the first time you were on the podcast. 
we ask you a very important question. We explain that this really sets the tone for the entire podcast, our entire time here. My question to you the first time was, if you and Toby Sumter had to arm wrestle, who would win? And your insightful answer was, it doesn't matter who I would arm wrestle, they would win. And then you paused and you said, because I would let them win. <laughs> so... That so, sounds like something I that sounds like something I would say. <laughs> yeah. And so uh just just for to be completely transparent, uh that didn't hit me till about an hour or two after we finished that episode. And I'm like, hang on a minute. <laughs> that was snarky. <laughs> <laughs> so so the question for the current day is this in light of your and James White's uh debate tomorrow on Pedo Communion. If you and if you and James White had to arm wrestle, who would win? It'd be a stalemate. It'd be a stalemate. <laughs> oh, here we here we go again. <laughs> yeah, I would win, but wouldn't admit it. <laughs> oh my, uh, um, Doug, we are going just to be kind of going through a few uh, to get some insights and really and truly this is just on the uh, section one of your book. There's so much good stuff in this book uh, and uh, just there's so much practical information, practical truth that we can apply. Uh, and I know that, uh, you know, on the uh, on the page before the table of contents, um, you give the you, you put the Ch- Chesterton quote there. But really, uh, the final part of that Chesterton quote was, but reform is a metaphor for reasonable and determined men. It means that we see a certain thing out of shape, and we mean to put that into shape. And most importantly, and we know what that shape is, right? Mm-hmm. So so t- tell us a little bit, because I, uh, I know most of our audience knows you, but there may be some folks that are just getting to know you, becoming aware of who you are and, and your stances. Uh, you are a lover, of course, of G.K. Chesterton. Yeah, yeah. Correct? Correct. Tell us a little bit about how your uh, how, how your love for his writing uh, grew. So it it, uh, it began when I was a freshman in, at the university. I, I went into the Navy first, so I, I served my just under four years in the Navy in the submarine service. And so I came back to college and majored majored in philosophy as an older freshman. So I was I was 22 as a as a freshman and started taking philosophy courses and started to encounter the fact that many of these learned 50 pound brains who run the world are are out of their minds. You know, it's, it's like good, it's, it's just good grief. And somewhere in my freshman year, I picked up uh, Chesterton's orthodoxy, which was sort of a lifeline of sanity while I was studying philosophy. He's just uh, nothing but horse sense. And it's just really good, sturdy, common sense. And um, and so I I fell in love with Chesterton then and have been reading him off and on pretty regularly uh, since then. Awesome. Awesome. So, uh, in in this book, this is um, if if folks have really done the study or even read the introduction to your book, they realize as the the title of it, the intro is a tip of the hat to Saul Alinsky. 
Can you uh, communicate to the audience just a little bit about who Saul Alinsky is? Although he was a leftist, obviously you're not as in, as the book states. Right. Uh, but how you came about uh, writing the book here? Right. So he was uh, a community organizer, shall we call him, um, uh, in Chicago in the uh, mid 20th century, and uh, he was a leftist, a hard leftist, and but a brilliant tactician. He he was just really uh, he was brilliant, and uh, he wrote a book, a very influential book called Rules for Radicals, and that that book was one that I was introduced to at the early end of Obama's tenure. So um, Alinsky had a big impact on Obama. Saul Alinsky had a big impact on Hillary Clinton. And somebody said, hey, we conservatives need to check out where a bunch of this is coming from. So uh, I, I uh, picked up Rules for Radicals and read through it. There were there were a lot of takeaways that conservative Christians can use. Yeah. So, some things, obviously, we, we couldn't, but some th- many things that we could. And so what I did was my father had written a book called Principles of War back in the 60s. And he, what he did is he took the military principles of uh, physical warfare and applied them to what he called strategic evangelism. And so uh, what I did is uh, this book is sort of a, a mashup inspired by Saul Alinsky on the one hand and my father's book, Principles of War, on the other, trying to equip conservative Christians who are sort of at, at, at sea when it comes to how do we how do we engage in these culture wars Um, and to give sort of a handbook, uh, a handbook on how we should think about our conflicts. Good, good, good. So very first, and we'll just move right through these. So just a few insights, uh, several insights we'll take from section, just section one of your book again is all we're really going to be focusing on. But the very first sentence, page 15, the very first sentence you open the chapter up and it says principles that govern every form of conflict are constant in all possible scenarios. So t- talk to us a little bit about that. All right. So um, the, the distinction that everybody has to master at the front end is the distinction between principles and methods. Okay. Principles are one thing and principles never change. Methods change according to the the age the warfare is occurring in so uh, if two if two uh, tribes attack one another with rocks and sticks um, the rocks and sticks are the method the principles would be things like surprise mobility um, concentration uh, so the tribe that is runs this, that they have the mobility. The mobility. Mobility is going to be a value in a Stone Age conflict and a medieval conflict and in a modern conflict. Mobility matters. Surprise matters. The general who is surprised is at a disadvantage. You want to always want to be the general or the admiral who surprises. Right. 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 But you might but you might surprise them with a carrier fleet. Or you might surprise them with bows and arrows. So, <laughs> right. so the 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 surprise is the ingredient, the principled ingredient that is constant in every form of conflict. Methods 
are weapons, basically. The weapons you use, the, the particular things you use. So in a cultural conflict, a weapon or a tactic might be taking out an ad in the newspaper or dropping a video. Uh, there's nothing principial about using video. That's just a tool, right? right? right. Uh, what it, what should conservative Christians have done before there were videos? <laughs> <laughs> right? They should they should mark the principles. So people who are trained in thinking in terms of principles and not methods are going to be at a great advantage. Mm-hmm. Yeah. back to your regularly scheduled program changing something that's probably good enough right there yeah Um, that's that's quite enough thank you (laughs) so so doug wilson responds to the to the spitting in the face by michael todd of his uh in a sermon illustration what do you what do you how do you respond to that my response would be twofold one would be crikey and the other would be jeepers (laughs) <laughs> Crikey and jeepers! I'll, I'll be honest. My response the first time I saw that was "Holy hell, Batman!" <laughs> no, that may not be religiously prudent, but my goodness! But it's better than spitting. <laughs> yes. Oh my gosh! Yeah, yeah. That's a uh, that's the kind of stuff that goes on uh, in the uh, in the uh, charismatic. Circles in a lot of the mega churches, so unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. So let's uh, let's get back to the good stuff here now, and <laughs> let's uh, let's get back let's get back on point here. We can just completely get rid of that off my screen. Okay, so uh, ten principles of war. Moving on here in section right. one, the ten principles of war, as listed out by you here, are objective, offensive, concentration, mobility, security, surprise, cooperation, communication, economy of force, and pursuit. These are the ten principles of war. And uh, if we if we're just jumping ahead a little bit to page eighteen and nineteen in your book, the decisive point. I wanted to read just uh, a little bit from that section in this chapter. You said this, one of the first things a reformer has got to get used to is is the experience of being despised and unpopular. Societies do awful things, that which need to be reformed, because they want to. And the reformer is the one beckoning them to a state of affairs that they don't much want. Um, the scripture says, you shall not fall in with many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Exodus 23, 2 and 3 ESV. Notice what this passage requires of us, you state. That these are, uh, there are times when the doing of evil is popular. Many want to do evil and they summon you to join them. There are other times when you are being pressured to bear false witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many in order to pervert justice. And if you didn't trip over the next verse, you weren't paying attention. It prohibits every form of affirmative action along with all its ugly cousins. The next paragraph you state, a reformer has to be the kind of man who can stand up to the clamor of the mob. This is the vertebrate mentality exhibited by Athanasius when he was informed that the world was against him. Well, then he replied, let it be known that Athanasius is contra mundum against the world. A true reformer gives the PR department bits. 
So uh, we, we we live in a day and a time. I think I, I, and I'll, I I don't know. I don't want to uh, over or over or under characterize uh, reform us as reformed folks, right? I think many uh, who who we know to be uh, friends and Calvinistic reform, so on and so forth. Many of them don't seem to seem to have a problem standing up and going kind of a going against the flow. But so, where were you coming from when you wrote this? Did you have any specifics in mind? Um, sure. You, you um, it goes back to the first principle of war, which is objective. So. Uh, the fundamental question that every pastor, every theologian, every uh, evangelist needs to ask when they get up in the morning is, what am I here for? What's, yeah. what's the mission? Because if, if we don't have a clear-headed view of the mission, which would be the Great Commission, right? Yeah. The mission is birth and twofold aspect to the Great Commission, birth and growth. Yeah. And don't stop until the world is converted. Amen. <laughs> All right, that's that's the mission. So if if you don't have a clear-eyed view of that mission, the mission is going to devolve down to something a lot less significant. Your your mission is going to become to to pay the bills or right. to keep the lights on or to keep the staff happy or to make payroll. Right? Yeah. Um, and, and so basically the reason you, you think your church should exist next year is because that it existed all last year. <laughs> right. The reason, the reason we should be here is that we're here. Our, our existence justifies itself. Right. Well, that's not, that's not how a general, a successful general or successful admiral thinks. What are we here for? So, um, so the, 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 um, thing I have in mind is people who have, who are undergoing mission drift, even though they can still sign the Westminster Confession of Faith, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. So th they still, they think, oh, it's, there's no mission drift here because we still, all, all of us still believe this stuff, yeah. right? But wait, wait, are are you trying to persuade the world to believe it also? Right. We're, we're not looking for uh, small victories. We're looking for total conquest. Right. Right. Exactly. <laughs> right. Right. And kind of not having a, from an evangelical perspective, I mean, uh, if, if honoring Christ, honoring Christ's word isn't our goal, then we are wandering stars. Yeah, I mean, Correct. what Hebrews 12, um, wherefore seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight in the sin that does so easily beset us, and let us run the race with patience, looking unto Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. Right. I mean, not having that that first object, that first principle of war objective, I think is is so very, very important. It's not starting off with a, a random goal, a random aim. I mean, when we go on vacation, we don't think to ourselves, uh, I don't look to my wife and say, April, next week, we're going to go on vacation. 
where are we going, dear? I have no idea. We're just going to get in the car and drive. And <laughs> that inevitably is going to lead to frustration and <laughs> and disunity in the household because <laughs> we're going we're not going to be where know where we're going. Therefore, it's going to cause more problems. It just gives us a good point of perspective, I think. There. Let, me, let me give you two two quick examples on this. In the Vietnam War, when we lost uh, our sense of objective, what was mm-hmm. the objective of the war? In World War II, it was to conquer Berlin, and it was unconditional surrender on the part of Germany and Japan. That was the objective. In mm-hmm. Vietnam, we had no cor- no objective like that. But you need to have some sort of objective that you can point to day to day. And mm-hmm. so, in so the the uh, the American forces started pointing to body counts. Like how many people, how many of the enemy were killed today? How many Americans were killed today? How many of the South Vietnamese were killed today? And I remember the newscasts with body counts, but body counts are militarily and strategically irrelevant. Right. Right. It has nothing to do with it. It has nothing to do with anything that you went to war for. So uh, that that was a good example of a military mission drift. The same thing is happening to the Russians in Ukraine right now, yeah. right? They they don't have a clearly stated objective, and a bunch of their own troops don't know why they're there. And so the whole thing is devolving into flattening civilian cities, right? Mm-hmm. The, so, what's the, so what's the goal? So people are – God has made us uh, teleological beings, meaning that we are focused on the end goal. And if it's, if it's not the scriptural end goal, we're going to come up, we're going to cook up one of our own. Yeah, exactly. So objectives important. Second point is uh, offensive. We should look for a way on page 37 in your book, you wrote, we should look for a way to stop responding to initiatives, to the initiatives of the adversary and start behaving in such a way that they have to figure out how to respond to us. So am I correct in understanding here? We need to stop being so worried about how others are, or, or, uh, I'm sorry, uh, that, that we need to stop worrying about how we're going to respond to the enemy, but give the enemy a, a reason to be, have those same concerns within themselves. Correct. Usually <laughs> if you're coaching a football team, usually you score your touchdowns when you have the ball. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> you know, Occasionally, def- the defense scores a touchdown, but they do it by getting the ball and <laughs> turning into the offense. Right. Um, we we need to stop. Christians have a bunker mentality generally when it comes to the culture wars. We wake up, wake up in the morning and we say to ourselves, "What are the progressives going to do today? What are the secularists going to do today? What what fresh hell are they going to unveil right. um, today?" <laughs> and that mentality, although it's it's good that you're on the right side and you don't want the bad guys to win, the that mentality is why they're going to win. Yeah, you need to get up in the morning and and ask yourself, what can we do that's going to flabbergast them? Yeah. <laughs> so uh, on that, uh, well, th- that leads us really right into the next uh, principle. Principle three. 
the the idea of concentration. So objective, mm-hmm. offensive, and concentration. Obviously, right. this is not talking about how hard you think, but how well directed your thoughts are. <laughs> Correct. <laughs> Correct. That's exactly right. So in in your book on page thirty eight on the second paragraph. Uh, in this first section here, you said concentration will be most effective when applied to a decisive point, a place where it is likely that your concentration will work and where it will matter a great deal to the enemy if it does work. Uh, the tip of the spear is the term that's used. I think that's a uh, that's a analogy that highly goes overlooked and misunderstood by many today, Christian right. and non-Christian alike. So can you talk to us about the importance of concentration? Yeah. Concentration would go together, uh, like you said, with the decisive point. And in any given battle or in any given war or metaphorical war or spiritual war, there is a decisive point. And the decisive point has two characteristics. The first characteristic is that it is, it is of great strategic value. Mm-hmm. So if you take that point, it matters greatly to the battle or to the war or to this stage of the war, uh, it matters if you take it. Okay. How strategic is it? Uh, The second characteristic is of a decisive point is that it has to be feasible. Yeah. Okay. Um, So uh, this feasible means that if you attempt to take it, you've got a reasonable expectation of success. Right. So a target could be, I'm speaking evangelistically, culturally here. A target could be strategic and not feasible, like New York City. Yeah. All right. If we took, if we took New York City for Jesus, it'd be all over. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, the problem is that New York City is not feasible. Right. Okay. Uh, it's a, that's a bigger target. So we could, you, I'll have to fill you in a little bit on, on this. Uh, we could take Beauville, Idaho for Jesus. Uh, Beauville is a little town bend in the road a little bit east of us here. Um, nobody knows quite how many people live in Beauville because in the history, uh, in recent living memory, no one has ever returned a census form from Beauville. <laughs> <laughs> They're kind of doing they're kind of doing their own thing out there, but it's not it's not much of a town. And we could take Beauville for Jesus uh, in the time it took us to unload our moving vans. Yeah. Okay. We but then when all was said and done, all we would have is Beauville. <laughs> so right. uh, so it's feasible but not strategic. It's and then on the other end, Los Angeles or New York is strategic but not feasible. So wherever you are, if you live in New York or if you live in a big city or uh, in a more populous uh, place, if you live in a place like New York, you have to stop thinking in terms of New York City as a whole and ask yourself, what are the decisive points within New York City? Right. Okay. So scale it down till you get to the point where you've got a feasible target that matters. Yeah. Okay. And then you want to concentrate your efforts at that place. Yes. Okay. Okay. So the reason the reason we're here in Moscow, Idaho, is my dad, as I mentioned, wrote the book uh, "Principles of War," and he de- he decided back in the '60s that the decisive points culturally in North America were major universities in small towns. 
Mm-hmm. So the small town made it feasible. The university made it important. Yes. And then he, then he found out that Moscow, Idaho and Pullman, Washington are two small towns, eight miles apart in two different states and with a major university in each one. So Washington State University is in Pullman, eight miles west of us, and University of Idaho is here in Moscow. So he moved here. So the name of the game was to concentrate fire, concentrate your forces, concentrate your efforts in a place that actually matters, and you get a lot bigger bang for your buck. And one of the reasons why all the cascading material is coming out of Moscow now is because of that decision that he made back in the 70s to move here. It, 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 he was concentrating his fire and the fire of the people that he would influence in one place that would be a force multiplier. Earlier, earlier in the earlier in this section of the book, you made the I, I think it was earlier that you made the the statement. Uh, re- reforming is the long game. We ha- always have to be playing the long game. Right. Correct. Correct. All right. So concentration there. We've got that. So mobility. Uh, as far as we're concerned, you wrote here in the book, mobility is a state of mind. And I want to read this because I love these. I love these quips that you make here uh, in speaking of David and Goliath and Saul. Uh, you said, of course, the greatest faith here concerning uh, David's defeat of Goliath, uh, the greatest faith here was David's. But it is worth noting that it was an act of faith on Saul's part also. This was a single combat that put all of Israel's armies at stake, and Saul gave his blessing to it. At last, it is not often recognized that the five smooth stones represent what later came to be known as the five points of Calvinism. (laughs) Again, I love that. I love that. I love that. That that was an example of a concentrated statement being interjected at a decisive point in the book. So I, I refer to myself as the happy Calvinist. Uh, uh-huh. I know there are some folks who say there's no such thing as happy Calvinists, but I, I beg to differ. There are plenty of happy Calvinists. <laughs> yes. And uh, if, if you don't mind, um, I'd throw in that uh, saying, identifying the five who smooth stones with the five points of Calvinism is also a, an appeal to the element of surprise. Yes. The, so uh, it if you're <laughs> writing for someone who's not a Calvinist, for example, yeah. that sort of joke can be disarming. Yeah. Yep, you're up. <laughs> so mobility, it's a state of mind, being ready always really to make that those adjustments that are necessary. Right. Now, on a, 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 an important point on mobility, and we're what we're doing here is an example of it, mm-hmm. right? Um, I don't even know. I don't even remember where you are. Um, we're on we're on uh, mobility, actually. Um, no, where where you are in oh, the Knoxville, North, Tennessee. North, <laughs> not, you're right, you're in Tennessee. Yeah. All right. So uh, the the fact that we live in a generation where someone could be having a video conference like this with someone across the continent and then say, Oh yeah. Where are you, by the way, are you in Brazil? (laughs) (laughs) Um, That's an example of mobility. Yeah. Right. Um, So that means that words and clips and content can travel much faster than it used to be able to. 
Now, what you what you want to be you want to couple this with the previous thing we talked about concentration, because mm-hmm. um, the internet basically enables us to move our our inanity or our ignorance around the world at high rates of speed, right? (laughs) So it's possible for me to Instagram my lunch, take a picture of it, Instagram it, and show the people in New Zealand what I had for lunch. (laughs) And that's, uh, that's quick. And they, they see it within seconds and it also doesn't matter. Right. Right. (laughs) I'm just, I'm just, I'm using up ones and zeros, but if, uh, preachers of the gospel, if people who are committed to filling Jerusalem with your doctrine, as the complaint was against the early church, yeah. uh, these tools, the tools that the internet has given us, are massively um, potent and yes. important. As we can see from the attempts of Google and Facebook and uh, Twitter to censor them. They want this horse has gotten away from them and they want to get a bit and bridle on it. And so they can control, so they can control, manipulate because they don't want renegade Calvinists talking online and, <laughs> and then depositing that content in New Zealand, in Australia, in Brazil. So what we're doing here has extraordinary mobility. So what we want to do is then learn how to target it, learn learn how to apply these things in a concentrated way yeah. where the people who would most benefit by getting this content are informed of it. That's right. That's right. And that's the aim and the goal of, of the podcast itself, the Here I Stand Theology podcast. We want to inform and educate our uh, audience there. All right. So next point. Um, would be security, right? Uh, or yeah, yeah, security. So on page 46 in the last two paragraphs, you write, and so we come to security. Security cannot be a standalone principle. And you you expound on this very clearly. Guarding oneself against the possibility of defeat is important, but prudent security is not the same thing as a risk-free warfare. A war in which there is no possibility of things going wrong is not really a war. <laughs> it's like kind of like you know, it's like playing playing a three year playing basketball with a three year old. There's not there's not a possibility really much of a possibility of you losing. So you can't really call, call it a sport. Uh, the um, Sun Tzu put it: the good fighters of old first put themselves beyond the possibility of defeat and then waited for an opportunity of defeating the enemy. So rather than reading that next paragraph, I think that's, that's a good place to stop on that there. So um, talk to us a little bit about the importance of security and principled security, really, and practical. Yeah. Security means that you work with people that you can trust. That doesn't, that doesn't mean that the trust is absolute. Um, Judas betrayed the Lord and Demas deserted Paul. So, Mm -hmm. but, but, qualifications for leadership matter uh you you might have someone in your leadership team you might have someone in your group that flakes and and veers off and does something but what you shouldn't have and that's that's just you're no better than the lord you're no better than the apostle paul but what you shouldn't uh have is someone in your entourage or your group who flakes 
and you were worried about them from the moment you hired them. <laughs> right. right. So if 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 you said I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, and then finally it happens, mm -hmm. that would be a violation of security. Right. Um, uh, the you you can't guard absolutely against. This is a fallen world. You can't guard right. absolutely against someone flaking on you, but you you should be able. You you should not have security risks in your group simply because you lack the courage to ask pointed questions. Yes. I'd agree 110% there. 110%. Moving forward, the element of surprise, very important. You touched on this as well. Um, <laughs> and, I, and I'm actually, uh, again, another Chestertonian uh, quote in reference here on page 52, you wrote to the extent that they have a character caricature of a speaking of Calvinists, we should do whatever we can to dismantle that caricature all at once. Surprise. For example, they want to write off all social conservatives as throwback Puritans with crabbed pinched faces worrying desperately about somewhere, somebody calling that number on the bathroom wall and <laughs> having a good time. <laughs> the answer is to cultivate a sunny Calvinism, a Chestertonian Calvinism. Uh, Chesterton himself would, of course, be annoyed at my appropriation of his great name to serve as an adjective to my soteriology. But as you said, we all have our crosses to bear. And I would add, what's he going to do about it? He's dead. So. <laughs> and and as a Calvinist now, yeah, <laughs> he he gives us his posthumous blessing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so so the 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 element of surprise. How important is that when it comes to uh, the principles of war? I think it's very very important. So, and I would say there's two. Uh, strong elements of surprise that we should be looking to do. One would be the um, the tactics. The the you know, let's say you have a, a concert or a, a conference, or you 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 want to uh, think about things like having it in an odd place, or mm -hmm. or having it in a way that makes everybody go, "Whoa, what what are they doing?" or "What are they?" <laughs> right. you, you know, "What are they up to?" What's that for? So it's just the things you do. But I'd say the biggest element of surprise is the way you are. Mm -hmm. All right. So uh, one of the things that is, um, so I have a grandson who's um, in uh, at Columbia uh, in New York City. And one of the things that he's interacting with a lot of liberals mm -hmm. and one of the things that's striking to him is how many of the liberals and the progressives have bought in completely to the propaganda, the incessant propaganda about white supremacists and the way the red states are and that sort of thing. And he's been in conversations with people who are convinced that if they, if they went to a small town in flyover country, they would be taking their life in their hands. Yeah. So they think that they actually think that, the the rhetoric that has gotten everybody up up to this fever pitch is um is a is a true threat to them now here's the thing if someone like that come uh, visits your church or visits your town or uh let's say a secular journalist who uh comes to interview you and you are pleasant 
you you listen to them. You don't stand on your chair and yell at them. Uh, <laughs> that you you're gonna basically your interaction with them is going to break all the paradigms, right? All the stories that they've heard. Um, one time, many years ago. Um, my wife used to sell uh, fabric out of her house as a sort of a side gig. And at the time I was, I was a newspaper columnist, uh, did a weekly conservative column for our local paper. And a lady that Nancy didn't know came to buy some fabric and they were chatting. And as time went on, it slowly began to dawn on this woman who Nancy was. And she finally said, you're, you're not married to Doug Wilson, are you? And Nancy said, uh, Nancy said, well, yeah, yes, I am. And the lady said, but you're so nice. (laughs) (laughs) But you're so nice. Um, That kind of thing really is disarming. Yeah. Okay. uh, It's surprise. Um, And then ultimately you want to surprise with the gospel. Um, People think that conservative Christians are, Harbinger are messengers of hard condemnation. That that we want to build the Handmaid's Tale. That we want to yeah. we want to do horrific, awful things. We want reformed ayatollahs with weird beards chopping off hands, <laughs> chopping off people's hands. And and when when they hear you preach, and you're preaching a message of free grace yes. and forgiveness for everyone, yes. <laughs> uh, purchased for you on the cross. That doesn't fit in any of their compartments, yep. right? And and it's a surprise. You're right. Uh, along those lines, I think about, and I can't remember which, uh, I think it was, it may have been Whitfield that said it, that we, we ought to preach the gospel promiscuously, and that's exactly yeah. right, freely to all. Right. Freely to all. All right, so the element of surprise there, you you illustrated that one more. I, I, I love the, Again, I love this. John Montague, the Earl of Sandwich, was up against John Wilkes, a reformist politician. Montague looked at Wilkes in exasperation and said, Upon my soul, Wilkes, I don't know whether you'll die upon the gallows or of syphilis. The comeback of the age was, that will depend, my Lord, on whether I embrace your principles or your mistress. <laughs> that, that, that put him on his heels, no doubt. <laughs> so uh, the, the next principle, moving right along here, and we'll, we'll, we'll just go just a few more minutes here, Doug. Uh, All right. For the principle of cooperation, how important that is. Obviously, co-op, that's kind of one of those, uh, you know, plain plain principles set forth cooperation involves the doing involves the doing it is one of the most difficult principles to observe it's it's highly clear and yet it is one of the most challenging to achieve yeah so i would say the thing i would push uh for here is what i would call an evangelical ecumenism um so there are all kinds uh, in the Baskins and Robins of evangelical Christianity, there are all kinds of flavors. Mm-hmm. And, and it's not just a matter of pick the flavor that suits you because it, the Bible does teach one thing and not another. Mm-hmm. So I'm not a charismatic and I'm not an Arminian and I'm not a dispensationalist. And I'm, right. you know, so there, and I think that the people who embrace those theologies are in error, mm-hmm. but, my question is, is God in fellowship with them? Is that person, is that person walking with God? If that person is walking with God, uh, 
mistakes and all, yeah. uh, just as I walk with God, mistakes and all, right. uh, I should be willing to cooperate as far as it's possible with anyone that I believe the Lord is in fellowship with. Amen. Okay. Now, that doesn't mean that I hide or pretend to agree where I don't, right? Right. Uh, I, I don't tell lies in order to cooperate. Right. But but I can have a cooperative disposition and say, look, um, God bless you guys. Um, this is, you know, the, a number of years ago, I had a real good lesson in this, a good uh, example of this, I should say. We had one of our periodic uh, controversies here locally. And uh, I was accused of racism and wanting to bring back, back, bring back slavery and a bunch of <laughs> Yeah. A bunch of false charges, right? right. So, um, and there were people who had known me for years, and who knew that I wasn't a racist. Who were and who were more, who were closer to me theologically than mm. others, who backed away. Okay, wow. okay, they backed away, and then in the middle of this, you know, friends sort of pulling their skirts away. Um, in the middle of that, I got a phone call from a charismatic minister who um, invited me to a charismatic minister's luncheon, which mm-hmm. was, this was an odd, um, yeah, this was an odd event, <laughs> right? And so I, I went, and and they said basically, oh, slavery, schmavery, you know, um, this is all about Jesus, you know, this is all about Jesus. So they prayed for me. Um, yeah you know, they, they sort of, they gathered in. And I think it's because charismatics, uh, whatever errors they have are used to being looked down on. Mm. They're, they're used to being sort of the outliers and uh, the evangelicals who backed away from me wanted to be, didn't want to be in that position. And so I want to cooperate. These people were clearly, yeah. Uh, people who love the Lord and were prepared to love a Calvinist from another state right. um, and who made a, made a point of doing that. Yeah. Um, that is the kind of cooperation I think the Lord blesses. When you're at war, you don't want your army fighting with your Navy. That's right. You, you want your army and Navy and Air Force all to be dealing with the the larger issues. So the the things that the progressive left well, the things that the progressive leftists have in store for us are the sort of things that make me want to set theological debates to the side for the present. Not mm-hmm. that they're unimportant, but that they're less important than the Klingon Klingon invasion that we're dealing with. <laughs> yeah. I agree. Cooperation. About, uh, there, there's more for us as Christians to cooperate and to agree upon than there is to disagree. Right. To a to a large part, and remember what the Lord yeah. taught about what the Lord taught about um, straining out mint mint uh, straining out a, a gnat and swallowing a camel mm-hmm. and tithing mint dill and cumin. Mm-hmm. Um, so if I meet a charismatic brother at a pro life march, and I don't agree with him on tongues or prophecy at all, right. but we agree on let's not chop up the babies, <laughs> right? Okay. Right. Um, we agree on that. Well, you know, God bless you, man. Let's 
let's deal with that. <laughs> let's deal with that first. Exactly. Exactly. So cooperation is important because without cooperation, uh, those the previous principles really they 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 really begin to build and come to a head here. Next right. is communication. The importance of communicating. On page sixty two, you wrote, "When you are communicating with a large number of people, it's important not to say too much." The point is to communicate what needs to be done and to promote everyone to do it. The point is not to explain everything in excruciating detail. That being said, let's move on to the next point because that was <laughs> that was that was it. That was clear. Uh, right. uh, the next uh, the next uh, principle would be number nine. That is economy of force. So how we use our force, right? Economy of force right. combines in an artistic way objective, offensive, security, surprise, mobility, concentration, and cooperation. Mm-hmm. Economy of force is the pursuit of efficiency in war. So what would be yes. the converse to efficiency in war? Uh, being scattered, disorganized, <laughs> um, uh, flailing. So uh, basically what the Russians are doing in Ukraine right now. Yep. Uh, uh, do this. No, wait, do that. Do the other <laughs> thing. That didn't work. Now what? Um, that, so basically economy of force is, the, is probably the, um, one of the more obvious principles that they are neglecting mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. um and so what we want to do is we you want to have a smooth decision making uh, polity in your church let's say you, you, your church is your unit mm-hmm. right uh, you don't want to have cultivated a democratic ethos this goes back to the communication mm-hmm. point where you say okay what well, what we're going to do folks is this we're going to um, the elders have decided that we're going to do this and then have 25% of your people say, why, how come, um, we didn't get, um, basically you have to have, uh, uh, embedded trust in between the leadership and the people Yes. so that when a decision has to be made and you have to turn on a dime, um, the decision can be make made quickly and this goes back to mobility mm-hmm. right right so uh we we recently had a a situation uh i was i was just so pleased with our elders uh where a a, a small church building downtown moscow came up for sale mm-hmm. and we were able to make that decision t- turning it around inside a week and mm-hmm. it it was a good um it was a good example of communication within the elder board economy of force uh, is sort of an elegant placement of what this, this church is going to matter and, yeah. and mobility. We were able to do it quickly and surprise whenever, when, when it's revealed to the town, Hey, look, who's there. <laughs> um, <laughs> it uh, almost not even, not even words. You just wave as people yeah. drive by. Right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. And last of all, the 10th principle of war is pursuit. Uh, Failure to pursue frequently reveals that the objective in the campaign was not victory, but rather some version, which you talked about at the very beginning here today, but rather some version of the upper hand. We don't want the upper hand. We want conquest. Right. And um, the reason um, after the Battle of Gettysburg, 
the the uh, civil war went on for two more years because pursuit was not um, because the union forces did not pursue. Um, we won the battle. Isn't that enough? Well, no, <laughs> no. So, and that's what uh, that's what Gideon uh, does when when he when he uh, wins his great victory. They they pursue and they pursue ardently. Uh, it's it's a it's a very important uh, principle principle of war, and that means you you don't want to settle for fighting off the bad guys successfully. So we we withstood their assault. That's not enough. Uh, uh-huh. What you want to what you want to do is counterattack. Um, and again, we see this right in front of yeah. us w- with Ukraine. Uh, it shouldn't be enough for the Ukrainians to fight the Russians to a standstill. What they need to do is fight them to a standstill, then take the offensive, which is another principle of war, um, and push them back. Right. Right. I agree. Whip their tail. (laughs) Right. Right. Um, So lastly here, sir, uh, we're going to cut off here in a minute. Again, I want to tell you I appreciate your time, but I would like to ask one more question. And really, this is for – for me, struggling, uh, I, I guess, to for articulate purposes of articulation uh, in my life, to uh, to my uh, circle of friends, to to our church, I pastor here at Reformata Baptist Church in Knoxville. But um, the the for for years, I have struggled with articulating the difference. If you might help me here, articulating the difference between uh, it being post we're post millennialists, obviously, but articulating the difference between post-millennialism and kingdom now theology or dominionism, how, how, what is the simplest, most direct way to articulate that difference? Because I, I think from, from folks look, standing on the outside looking in, they kind of, it, it can really kind of blur together. Yeah. And I'd like to make, draw a clear distinction in that. How can we do that? Right. So before I, I give this, distinction, I, I fully recognize that you might have something of a Venn diagram. There might be some overlap. So yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, so there might be some people who would call themselves in the dominion camp who agree with what I'm about to say. Yeah. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll recognize the border might be somewhat porous, but here's the, this is the distinction that I would make. I, I believe that uh, domin- sort of kingdom now, dominion stuff, and and not having read a pile on this mm-hmm. strikes me as sort of a a global version of name it claim it, a global version of health and wealth. Yeah. Um, so what we need to do is have a really exciting camp meeting um, revival here, and and sort of claim our city for Jesus. Um, now, I think we should be thinking that we want to win our city for Jesus Christ, and we should believe that it's inevitable that it's going to happen. But the living water that flows out of Ezekiel's temple is just a wet spot on the pavement right outside the door, and then it's half an inch deep, and then it's ankle deep, and then it's knee deep, and then finally it becomes a river that you can't swim across. Okay, so the Jesus teaches us that the kingdom is like a mustard seed; it grows to a huge plant. In Daniel, it's a um, 
it's the rock that's cut out from uh, without hands and grows mm -hmm. to become a mountain to fill the earth. Um, it's like leaven that's dropped in the loaf that works gradually, slowly through the loaf. So uh, my goal here in Moscow is to have this town be a Christian town. Yeah. I, I, I want Moscow to be as full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. But I also believe that it might be 300 years before that happens. Mm -hmm. Right. So I want to behave in such a way where I can see progress and I can see that we're making headway. I can see that we're trusting the Lord for these things. This is the mission. Mm -hmm. that's, the, that's the objective. But <clears throat> I don't want to pretend that I attained the objective simply because I had an, an exciting revival meeting. I, I, I don't want our our cultural evangelism to be like a charismatic healing service where you, where you pretend to be healed because you know you ought to be. Right. Right. And that would be stopping short. That would be stopping short of right. conquest. Right. Yeah. So, so that, and I just wanted to ask that. I appreciate your insight on that as well. Uh, again, Doug, thank you, Pastor Douglas Wilson, for being on the episode, on the podcast here with us once again. Don't forget, folks, uh, this episode won't be airing till tomorrow, so it'll be after your debate. Uh, so, uh, Pedo, Pedo Communion debate, James White, Doug Wilson, tomorrow yeah. at uh, 3. 12, 3 p.m. Uh, Pacific, Pacific Standard right. Time. And uh, I'm assuming you all will be recording that, correct? And yeah. posting yeah. it up later. Yeah. yeah. Everybody will love that. That'll be yeah. awesome. Yeah. All right. So, uh, again, thank you, sir, so much for your ministry, for your work, for your character, just for who you are. You've been a great encouragement to me thus far, and I'm sure you will continue to be. Um, folks, if you haven't yet gone to uh, find Doug, where can folks find you on Twitter, Doug? Uh, at Douglas Wills is my handle. But the best place to find every uh, best clearinghouse is my blog, DougWills.com. DougWills.com. Watch Blog and, and May. Go ahead. May blog and May blog. And I'm going to be in Knoxville in a few months. In October. In October. Yeah. Right. 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 The fight, laugh, feast thing. Yeah. Yes. And I'm. I, I think I've I've communicated with Gabe uh, tentatively. We've got a uh, a time we're going to get together with them. So maybe you can drop by. We can meet in person. That'd be yeah, awesome. Be yeah. <laughs> thank you again sir if i can ever be of assistance to you you let me know hope you'll have a great day okay sir All right.